0: Hi, this is Zane Horowitz, and it is our August 2020 Journal Club, and we're talking about a kind of a timely topic, at least for us here in the city of Portland, where we're on our 80 something day of nightly protest in the Black Lives Matter movement, and um, getting uh, tear gassed almost uh, nightly. So we talk, we, thought, we talk a little bit about tear gas, since we are getting a few calls about it, and we are going to cover a couple of historical aspects and some clinical manifestations. So the first article I actually have is a 30-year-old article out of JAMA. Um, The title is Tear Gas, Harassing Agent or Toxic Chemical Weapons. This is a group out of Harvard that actually at that time traveled to South Korea where that summer... Uh, or the summer before, they had been putting down uh, unrest demonstrations and possibly riots, um, and they tried to gather information about what people knew about the tear gases that were being deployed, and they tried to interview a lot of people and were somewhat successful, but somewhat not. Um, So they basically start out saying, uh, these agents... Um, were originally known as harassing agents, which is probably a better term than tear gas, yes. although they all make you have lacrimation. The intent of how these are used are basically to make you run away and disperse. Um, the agents we'll be talking about today are CN and CS mostly, but there's other agents over time that have been used. Uh, they mentioned uh, in England there was an entire like monograph put out after uh, CS was used extensively in Northern Ireland in the 1960s and talked about uh, its conclusion was that uh, while CS can be lethal, it's most not likely not going to cause that, but there have been cases of toxic pulmonary damage up to and including pulmonary edema. Um, so anyway, a little background about Korea, where they went. So in July 1987, this team went to visit South Korea. Uh, They mentioned that the tear gas was used extensively in almost every major city in um, South Korea. Um, And uh, they interviewed hundreds of people, uh, bystanders, victims, hospital employees, medical school... Um, And they tried to create this compilation for their findings, which they did eventually in monograph form, which was published elsewhere. Um, And they were able, uh, one of the few laboratory things, they were able to get a sample of the chemical that was used and found it to be nearly pure CS, one of the tear gases that's pretty much extensively used. Um, And they heard accounts of the police firing canisters and throwing grenades at Crowds that had gathered, including enclosed spaces, into motor vehicles, um, into uh, subway stairs and corridors where people had fled to. Um, and uh, they had people who complained of blistering on their skin. They had people who had required a hospitalization. Uh, they had spoken to shopkeepers and people who worked on the university campuses where the students. demonstrating and most of the symptoms as we'll see from the rundown are that they had uh, respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath and eye complaints. Um, The government uh, really wasn't very helpful at the time. They withheld the composition of what they were using from uh, the doctors. uh, The laboratories at that time Uh, were not actually told not to perform analysis but basically said they were afraid to do any sort of workup for fear of any sort of government reprisal. Uh, hospital authorities, um, and this was pre-HIPAA, I'm not sure there was ever a HIPAA-like law in Korea at the time, but they were reluctant to share any records or any facts whatsoever with this fact-finding team. It's um, so a little bit of history. They mentioned that poison gases have been used since pre-history uh, times and they use burning wax and military uh battles and pitch, but it wasn't really until World War I where the variety of chemical weapons were used including, as we well know, chlorine and phosgene in the trenches of Europe. But these harassing agents that were lacrimators uh, were also developed towards the end of World War I. The first one was actually CN, and for many years CN was the most widely used military and civilian it was reformulated into something called mace, which was a handheld product that was able to be used as a spray, um, you know, in case you were being assaulted or, or um, by a criminal. Um, and you could spray it in their face, and hopefully that would make them run away. It was basically CN with a bunch of solvents in it. But in general, the military more so than the police were not happy with CN, and they were looking for a safer agent, and in the 1950s, um, the chemical defense uh compound at Porton Down, England of the LCS, and was named for the two individuals that actually um, worked on it and I don't have their names in this document but I think we'll mention elsewhere. And it's basically is a white powder, crystalline powder, it's usually mixed with a pyrotechnique uh, compound to make it explode and smoke and the smoke or fog is suspended in the air nearby and it basically is within minutes of skin and eye and mucous membrane contact that people feel the effects, and anybody who can essentially walk around away will. Um, there are other uh, compounds that are mixed, there's like a CS1 and a CS2 that are used with silicon or water repellents, but mostly it's CS that's in the vast majority of tear gases that are used now by um, both military and police. So as far as toxicology go, there are a lot of the studies, and we'll talk about a couple of them, but they're always saying, seem to conclude that, you know, this is safe if used correctly. Um, I guess you could say the same things about guns, Um, but basically they took military uh, recruits and they did these studies where often they were sprayed for mere seconds and they were immediately hosed off. and looked at what the long-term or short-term effects were and they found them to be, you know, noxious but tolerable. Um, Certainly CS is a more potent lacrimator than previous available agents, but they did know when you look at other literature, there's been chemical pneumonitis, pulmonary edema, fatalities, heart failure, hepatocellular damage. Um, There was an infant exposed in a house uh, who uh, developed uh, severe pneumonitis and spent almost a month in the hospital. Um, so the respiratory concentration that would be lethal for 50% of healthy adults has been estimated to be 25,000 to 150,000 milligrams per cubic meter per minute based on animal studies. No one's ever actually exposed humans to this. Most of the CS grenades will generate a cloud for six to nine meters in diameter with the concentration of 2,000 to 5,000. So many, many times more less concentrated than that and it's at usual use but if something is detonated in an enclosed space and there's no escape then concentration potentially could reach that level there's been some oral studies in mice again not particularly relevant in huge doses might be uh, a small amount of cs is actually metabolized to cyanide but really people don't die from cyanide poisoning uh, they really get the acute Uh, Pulmonary effects. Um, They can develop burns, they can develop contact dermatitis, they can, uh, you know, develop obviously the eye findings as well. There's a paragraph here about the genotoxicity and talk about two or three studies in mice and the AIMS uh, criteria, but uh, basically, it's as far as they know, limited studies, there probably isn't. Um, that uh, you'd have to use gigantic doses to produce any sort of genetic or mut- mutagenic effects. The ability to go about treatment, which seems intuitive to us. It's like you remove the person from the poison. It's basic hazmat decontamination, bag their clothes that are saturated with it so there's no secondary contamination, wash their skin off with water. And we're going to talk about some of the studies about the alternative irrigation solutions, so I'm not going to go into those. Um, So, it basically concluded that from a toxicologic perspective, uh, back there in 1989, there's the need for greater, more research, and unfortunately there's not a lot that's been done, but we'll pick through some of the weeds of what has been done today. Um, People do tolerate it, people do survive this, it's definitely a non-lethal or less lethal mode to disperse people, but really the question really is more of a political human rights question really, is that obviously when people are rioting and producing damage uh, that maybe this is a reasonable thing to use before you start shooting on a crowd, but basically the the data on long-term effects, effects on bystanders, those kind of things are not well known, and when it creeps into increasing use just to dispel or disperse uh, Protest that seems legitimate under human rights uh, and the Helsinki Convention, they bring up here. And they mention that the hallmark of repression um, is often uh, to dequate the voice of dissent and deny its ability to assemble in free speech. And these agents are seemingly designed to harass those from doing that. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the science behind this, and a little less about politics. Uh, first article we have is from, uh, we presented by uh, Matt Correa, our new fellow, and it's uh, basically a little rundown on what tear gas is.
1: So this article is uh, Epidemiologic and Mechanistic Assessment of Tear Gas, and it's a relative comprehensive evaluation of the available data. So as Dr. Horowitz was talking about, that there's been pretty prevalent use of these sprays on people. And there's some evidence of short-term effects on individuals, but typically in it's very sub, small subset of, of population, um, but not so much on the actual individuals who probably are suffering exposure to these chemicals. As discussed, there's a handful of different chemicals that are used, including CS, CN, and CR, and um, another one called OC, which is essentially the capsicum. Um, resin that's used from the chili pepper plants and it's been found that previously uh, it's thought that the the risks are pretty minimal as some generally just immediate discomfort from those who are exposed to these chemicals but there's a growing concern that many are worried that there's long term effects or other effects on, on individuals with underlying diseases that are not being adequately appreciated. So it's also interesting as this has been previously discussed that although these chemicals are not allowed in combat, they are allowed in, as, as a way of controlling domestic violence um, and generally deployed via different methods. Um, the C based compounds are essentially solids that are aerosolized using a pyrotechnic uh, composition to cause a release of the chemicals. So not only is there a concern about the chemical themselves causing damage, but there's also worries that the other agents that are involved in allowing it to be released could also be toxic. But unfortunately, that's a little bit beyond the review of this current article, which will just focus on the C-based compounds and the um, capsicum resin. The, and unlike the C-based compounds, which are solids that are aerosolized, the um, capsicum is released via spray, handheld you know, canister spray. Essentially, the health effects of the exposures can be classified as immediate and chronic. From an immediate uh, standpoint, there's a rapid and near instantaneous irritation of the mucosal membranes, including the eyes, nose, mouth, and respiratory tract. You get tearing, um, ocular pain, cough, throat pain, difficulty breathing, which is all pretty immediate and induces a, a sense of suffocation and choking, which causes people to try and evade the chemicals that they're being exposed to. It's interesting to note too that the capsaicin chemical can also inhibit your blink reflex, so there's a concern that you can have actually more prolonged damage to your ocular membranes from from, um, the inability to appropriately react and avoid the chemical. From a respiratory standpoint, a lot of the data that's been derived was from laboratory experiments or from healthy individuals in the military. And there's very little evidence that assesses the safety of the exposure in those with chronic respiratory disease, such as asthma or COPD. Um, there are some small studies from Turkey that look at the, those exposed in these population groups that show that they do have some uh, reduction in their lung function and restriction in their small airways, so they have some bronchospasm from it. And not only were those who were directly exposed to the chemicals in, like, the Um, close proximity, but those who live in the surrounding area were also seen to have effects. So the concern from an epidemiologic standpoint is not only are the protesters or the group of rioters being exposed to these chemicals and their own health effects, but innocent bystanders and those living in the surrounding community may also be negatively affected, which is typically something that's not taken into account when um, these chemicals are being sprayed for riot control. uh, as we briefly mentioned, these chemicals were initially tested on healthy military recruits. And there was actually some evidence that showed the, that those who were being tested for uh, exposure actually did have an increase in respiratory infections, including influenza, after exposure. And the National Institute for Occupational Safety and our, the Occupational Safety Health Administration also found that due to the high levels of exposure that these military recruits were facing, they actually had to lower the exposure amounts um, for them due to uh, work hazards. So it's inter- interesting to note, though, that there's some administrative insight into the health, negative health effects on healthy, otherwise uh, individuals, and very little. It's um, data on those who are protesting and may have, may have more significant effects. Yeah and,
0: Jeff, yeah, and that's always been a concern, is like in the middle of COVID, is all these people gathered together, obviously you're going to spread COVID, but is the tear gas going to make them more susceptible at least to, to, the disease, as well. to the disease, or this you know, old military study suggests at least to influenza, yeah. the answer is possibly.
1: It is worrisome, and, and um, from, a, from a dermatologic standpoint, as we discussed the respiratory and, and ocular effects, that people can also have uh, facial... A redness and swelling that occurs afterwards and it's also concerning that some people can have blistering from very close contact to these chemicals and in some instances they might actually be sensitized by the chemicals themselves and have um, allergic reactions that can uh, occur down the road or have worsening flare should they be re-exposed to the chemicals down the line. Overall these chemicals are seen to be relatively safe and they don't cause people to die and the effects if they do occur, are relatively mild, um, although there are some some people do have worse effects. But there are there have been documented deaths, as Dr. Horowitz mentioned earlier. Usually, these are people who have been exposed to high concentrations in very confined areas for prolonged periods of um, time. Uh, this article that we, that we've been discussing currently brings up jail populations as a particular group, as those as these individuals when they're exposed, the chair guys really can't go anywhere, and they're uh, a captive audience, unfortunately. So should they be exposed, they're unable to uh, flee to cleaner air. Unfortunately, although there's there's an awareness of the lack of data on high-risk populations, there's an unfortunate dearth of evidence that, that studies the effect on these groups of people, and there's very, very limited data into it, which is one of the reasons that much more research needs to be spurred and, and carried out to try and figure out what the more chronic effects are, because the current available evidence does look at some patients and from a respiratory standpoint, but there's conflicting evidence on the long-term effects in asthmatics or people with COPD. There's also some concern that, this, that these chemicals might cause more long-term Issues with cardiovascular function increase your risk for acute myocardial infarction. Although it's unclear how it's it, the exact trigger, there's a worry that it's the uh, particular nature of the material that's being dispersed uh, that causes a uh, basal uh. and atherosclerotic effects similar to individuals who use tobacco. Um, going down into the more uh, micro or I guess the uh, biochemistry of how these chemicals work. It's been found that the chemical the receptors that are activated fall into a general class of what are called transient receptor potential ion channels and that's TRP for short. So there's two different classes. There's a TRP V1, um, so the V1 subgroup is what's typically activated when people um, are exposed to capsaicin, so as I think we all know, when you eat spicy food, you get the sensation of feeling hot, um, a burn, of burning and discomfort. Some people have more systemic reactions to, including flushing, warmth, itching. And essentially what happens is that the uh, capsaicin chemical binds to this uh, voltage receptor and causes the nerve to activate and based on the way that, the, that these nerves are activated, it's generally used as your body's defense mechanism um, so to avoid the noxious stimuli. So although some people do seek out the capsaicin effects for um, culinary purposes in the sense of using it as a blood right. control agent, it causes significant discomfort um, due to the high concentration of exposure. And depending on where the, the, these, these um, Ion channels are looking at and on which nerves de- determines the ultimate effects. Now, this has been known for a little for a little little while. There's actually been a new ion channel that's been um, discovered in the same family, which causes other effects from the tear gas agents that's not related to the capsaicin effects. And this is known as the TRPA1 class. And like the V1, this a- this A1 channel is also found on the nerve endings that. Um, try to identify noxious stimuli, and this one is what is the target of what was originally found to be mustard oil, so not mustard gas that's used in uh, chemical weapons, so this is a different chemical, this is the, the oil of the actual mustard plant, and it's also found in the in wasabi, horseradish, and this is the channel that activated you eat those foods and gives, us, gives you the, the reaction of discomfort and pain as well, and this is what the C class um, chemicals bind to so CRCN and CS bind to the TRP A1 channel and although they are found to be overall relatively diverse in their structures and it was unsure how initially these chemicals all with um, different shapes bound to the channel was found that do that they essentially bind to the channel at a, at a certain region and cause it to change in its, in its conformation and have the downstream effects based on the certain side chains on the uh, channel itself, and ultimately, activation of this channel is what causes the eye irritation and other respiratory discomfort as well that you experience when um, exposed to these gases. Now, there's also been some other research into what blocking these channels can do as well. So it's been found that, that in the current research that there's certain molecules that can block these channels, and Administering these these novel compounds inhibits the effects of the C class molecules. So there's also some some thought that trying to um, develop chemicals can can act as a way of decontaminating de- or treating people who've been inadvertently exposed or maybe advertently exposed to these chemicals as a way of de- them after. It's also that these that these um, chemicals can as well be used as a way of uh, preventing the negative effects of exposure to these chemicals. And um, essentially further research into into this TRP-A1 channel has been linked to many of the effects that have been seen in those who are exposed to um, the C-class molecules, including in their, uh, it's found in your uh, respiratory tract and, and activation induces cough and asthma in individuals. It's linked to irritation induced asthma in patients with COPD. It activates very similar effects as smoking tobacco. It's been found to increase your risk of heart arrhythmias through activation, as well as many of the skin effects, including pain and discomfort, that are seen with uh, the the exposure to these these gas chemicals. So it seems like, although this, this article kind of covers a lot of different things, that we're developing a better understanding of the chem of the biochemistry of how these bracket um, control agents affect your uh, system. And that now that we have a better understanding of the biochemistry, that and we know that the, the ways that we've been ex- testing and, and understanding how the populations are exposed to these chemicals, that um, that, 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 there's still a, that there's still a gap in understanding how the people that are exposed in the right situations are being adversely affected since on an individual scale we know that in patients with certain comorbidities that they likely will have adverse effects. We still don't have a more epidemiologic understanding of how this is all happening.
0: Yeah. No, great. Yeah, I think a little basic science to understand how these work is helpful, and it's only really been worked out in the last several years. Although these agents have been around for half a decade. Certainly uh, agents that might act similarly to cut the the chili pepper uh, thing we've used therapeutically as an ointment, and people even suggested it for the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome because it stimulates the same thing as hot showers do because it's a heat-related nociceptor. And then several of these other articles, including ones I didn't choose, talk about a variety of agents that might inhibit the calcium influx, including giltizam as a potential agonist in animal models and molecular models, but none of these have anywhere near close to uh, human trials. And again, the utility for it is going to be, where does it fit in?
2: Um,
1: One of the areas,
0: though, that uh, we talk about tear gas is it obviously affects the eye. And so I want going to talk about a couple of articles that talk about one is pathophysiology and the other is maybe a little bit of treatment. Um, so for this, return to our other new fellow, Courtney.
3: So this paper is a receptive, comprehensive review about capsaicin, which is the primary constituent of pepper sprays and its pharmacological effects on mammalian ocular tissues. It's a 2018 publication out of the University of Calcutta and Defense Research and Development Organization in India. Um, It's from the European Journal of Pharmacology. So they start this paper with a little bit of background because they are focusing on capsaicin, which is the principal component of oleoresin capsicum, which is a a group of active components from the the chili plant. Um, And the primary use of that that they detail in this paper is it's uses for riot control. Um, so they have done a, a bit of work to sort of compile a lot of tissue responses, um, ocular profiles, and uh, treatment strategies uh, throughout the paper. So the first section starts to go through the ocular profile and utility in riot control and they go through that the the most sensitive target organ is the eye Uh, and with topical application of capsaicin um, there is irritation within 10 to 20 seconds which generally subsides over an hour to five six hours in some cases and the oleoresin capsicum is a naturally occurring set of compounds and it contributes to this sort of pungency and irritation that we find when it's applied to tissues It consists of capsaicinoids, um, and the major component of that is the capsaicin. um, The most prominent constituent among all the branched uh, straight-chain alkyl vanillamides, right? So the receptor that this targets is the transient receptor potential vanilloid 1, TRPV1, in this case. So it's ranked at 1.5 million Scoville units, which is uh, the measuring system for heat in chilies. And it produces pain, tearing, burning, blepharospasms, more um, severe cases will result in corneal edema, ulceration, scarring, and opacification. In the paper they do have two figures um, that show signs of acute exposure in Wistar rats and albino rabbits and the papers show uh, photos of hyphema uveitis, um, coagulation necrosis, secondary glaucoma. And they want to note that the severity of these symptoms is uh, influenced by dose, root, and age of the animal, actually. They also note that when you give the capsaicin systemically, it's associated with a trigeminal nerve fiber degeneration in the cornea, and a little bit later in the paper, they'll talk about uh, um, sensory nerve degradation after application. Um, so they move on to talk about capsaicin-induced ocular sensory irritation, specifically in certain tissues. Um, they know that it's peripheral sensory irritant. It causes noxious sensation of the eyes and the respiratory tract um, by direct action on the sensory nervous system. So particles as small as two micrometers can cause respiratory irritation, and then once you get up towards fifty micrometers, it Uh, produces sustained ocular irritation. Um, The substances that are more likely to produce severe corneal damage are those that are able to penetrate the cornea. And once they pass through the corneal epithelium, they're able to produce the damage, but it's often limited to just that layer because they're generally poorly water soluble. And we have normal defense mechanisms to avoid this, which are a tear film, blinking, reflex tearing, but capsaicin is able to overwhelm this and ends up increasing the intraocular pressure. Um, so, in animal studies, they've noted that doses up to 50 micrograms per we are, are able to produce pain, specifically blepharospasm in rat eyes. And a study in 1995, though, showed no persistent damage in humans. Um, they know that the presumed lethal dose is about 0.5 to 5 grams per kilogram in humans and our blink reflex can be increased up to five days. Um, Most symptoms subside over an hour, but it can produce meiosis and an aqueous flare in animals. But overall, they go on to sort of conclude that it does not seem to disturb visual acuity, though corneal sensation is affected in these studies. The third section that they go through is the TRPV1 receptor in the ocular tissue. So there are 28 mammalian TRP genes, uh, and six of them are in the eye. The ocular TRPV1 channels uh, have a crucial role in providing natural vision, because it transposes the stresses of signaling events and then secondarily regulates physiologic responses to that. Um, Interestingly, the receptors are triggered at 43 degrees Celsius. And then when the TRPV receptor is activated, it has very high calcium permeability. And transient calcium and sodium currents generate pain, inflammation, and cause cellular damage um, by osmosis um, or secondary calcium-dependent processes. So second um, messenger signaling. Comments on, um, interestingly, Parkinson's patients, they make um, protection of nigral dopamine neurons mm-hmm. after systemic capsaicin. Um, so they are sort of um, introducing some facts about potentially it being protective in some cases, and then application of endocannabinoids uh, are able to decrease the permeability of the blood-brain barrier. So that's in sort of a systemic um, applications that they're looking at um, the way that capsaicin can be protective in certain situations. There are also, these receptors, trpb one are also found in stromal fibroblasts. And that is uh, interesting because it can produce differences in wound healing that's induced by ocular irritants. It's also present in retinal tumor cells and pigment epithelial cells, which can produce apoptosis. And prolonged stimulation of the channels um, by high doses of capsaicin actually just produce nerve degeneration and desensitize the corneal channels. Um, the capsaicin is able to bind the TRPB receptor, and, which is also present on neuronal cells and non-neuronal cells, so glial and mast cells also have this receptor. And endothelial cells are less sensitive because of the absence of the vanilloid receptor. Capsaicin activation um, will also modify the metabolic state in sensory neurons. So it will continue to promote neurodegeneration, induce cell migration, proliferation, and then the inflammation response that we know happens with ocular application of capsaicin is related to increased expression of IL-6 and substance P, which looks like it happens whenever this um, the channels are are stimulated. They go on to go through induced ocular mediations from capsaicin. Um, and what they mean by that is uh, they sort of give a definition about what the capsaicin does specifically to the corneal surface. And they describe that it actually dehydrates and wrinkles the corneal surface immediately after it's applied. And that may actually inhibit further drug entry now that they've disturbed the epithelium. Um, but the textural differences are what are responsible for the opacity and permeability of the corneal membrane. Um, figure three, they do have photos of the textural changes after a topical application. Um, they have a bovine cornea um, that's been pre-treated with a phosphate buffer, and then they've applied um, the OC compound, the oleoresin capsicum, at 10 milligrams per milliliter. And then they've noted the textural differences um, under a digital camera. Um, so, you can see a little bit of the opacity and, and the way that the, the actual epithelium has changed. And they explain that it also alters the fine architecture of sensory nerves. There are studies where um, capsaicin was repeatedly uh, administered to the conjunctival sac and it ended up producing neuroparalytic keratitis. Um, so, it, it, they also state that it's sort of very different from one species to another. Um, and in some studies, after there was the decline in corneal nerves from this sort of degeneration after capsaicin treatment, they actually have hyper in a later phase. So after this, they speak about neurogenic inflammatory influences. So prior to this was sensory tissue application, sort of what the epithelium Changes are physically and now we're going to neurogenic inflammatory response. So the animal studies that they go through in this paper um, support observation of neurogenic occurrences and capsaicin-induced ocular irritation. So once you apply topical capsaicin, you also have a neurogenic response. So inflammation is the preliminary defense against acute ocular injury, corneal edema, meiosis, increased aqueous humor. Conjunctival basal dilation, thermal irritation—these are all the responses that are involved by capsaicin, which are um, things that we see, um, as Mal was talking about, when it's applied um, in uh, public situations. They then want to say that diltiazem, as was mentioned before, has a, a selective blockade of the inflammation. They can use it in dry eye conditions um, and exposure to ocular surface chemical irritants as well as mechanical disintegration or interruption of this blood tissue barrier. Um, So when you have the uh, inflammatory response, you actually have delivery of the polys, um, these cells, into your tubes. So it actually decreases that when you apply uh, Diltiazem to this process. The response to capsaicin by corneal stimulation is mediated by CGRP and uh, SP, but the studies have shown that desensitized animals with mild ocular irritants do not influence them at all. So if you're able to desensitize an animal systemically with capsaicin, uh, the the capsaicin actually inhibits profound swelling, um, which is very interesting.
2: Um, There's
3: another interesting point in here that blepharospasm and eye wiping responses are stopped also by neurotoxic pretreatment. Um, And the neurogenic hypothesis of the ocular irritation predicted that capsaicin-desensitized animals or animals that are pretreated with neuropeptide antagonists might exhibit a low or negative reaction to mild ocular irritants. So that's kind of an interesting animal study that they cited. Um, as a follow-up to that, they talk about influences in neuropeptide content of the sensory nerve terminals. So that's most commonly found in neuropeptides uh, SP and CGRP, which I just mentioned. And uh, the capsaicin influences the withdrawal of the neuropeptides from the primary sensory neurons, including neurokinin A, somatostatin, and castin. And there's a drop in the content of the SP from the peripheral endings of the afferent neurons, including the trigeminal nerve, which I mentioned earlier. Um, And that was in uh, a study done on neonatal grafts. Retrobulbar injection of capsaicin showed a further delay of healing of uh, corneal epithelium wounds, such as uh, corneal abrasions and lacerations, um, and blocked the... um, Transport neuropenditis in the corneal nerves, but this was promoted by exogenous administration of SP. So that again speaks to uh, this sort of um, influence in the, the actual sensory nerve. Um, there are neuroprotective influences in retinal ganglion cells, which I talked about earlier as well, and that seems to have to do with uh, the effect of capsaicin on NMDA induced loss of retinal ganglion cells. When the TRPV1 uh, is activated by capsaicin, um, it was protecting the RDCs when studied in in vivo model of the NVA receptor induced retinal excitotoxicity. So again, they're noting that capsaicin can actually be protected in certain situations. Um, and here is particularly in the retina. Um, there are other uh, studies that they go through that talk about agonists preventing retinal disease like glaucoma and retinal arterial occlusions um, rising from glutamate side of and then other neuroprotective action through enhancement of neuronal activity um, that are able to antagonize the TRP uh, Accelerate it, acceleration after application and this is all again in the eye, all ocular induced um, effects um, There's also direct evidence that capsaicin actually downregulates the functional NMDA receptor expression. So again, all of these things are the authors sort of gathering data based on animal studies to say that there are situations where capsaicin actually can be protective because it can mitigate some of the excitatory or neurotoxic excitatory um, actions of certain processes, certain inflammatory processes. Um, they comment that during hypoxia and ischemic reperfusion, the excess glutamate that's uh, sort of induced by NMDA receptors um, are related to a large calcium influx. Um, and TRPV1 agonists have elicited these neural protective effects, particularly in the retina. And they go on to say that this might be a feasible. Um, way to start to evaluate what we can use for neuroprotective effects against NMDA used retinal injuries. Uh, now they talk about reversal of capsaicin evoked ocular responses. So if they assume that uh, this uh, response of irritation, pain, chemosensitivity of the nociceptors in the cornea um, by calcium antagonists. They went ahead and treated the eye with diltiazem, verapamil, or nifedipine, which is interesting. Um, they go through some studies where diltiazem at certain doses applied 15 minutes before capsaicin, uh, reduced scratching activities, conjunctival hyperemia, sudden eye closure, so all signs of capsaicin and irritation. Um, but it didn't particularly affect meiosis. Nifedipine decreased scratching movements as well, but had no Uh, Effect on the other inflammatory uh, symptoms that they had previously described. Uh, uh, As opposed to that, the barapmil was actually found to be completely ineffective. It doesn't actually do anything to mitigate the irritation that's produced by capsaicin in the eye. Um, One last point in this section was about tetrodotoxin. As a neuronal blocker or SP antagonist, uh, it reduces the ocular responses to capsaicin and prostaglandin E two. So all potential analgesics that they were sort of going through, um, but it looks like probably that deltaism was the most effective in the animal studies. Um, the last thing that they uh, start to describe is the prospect of TRPV one antagonisms as mitigators or alleviators of ocular irritation and inflammation. Um, we do have a competitive antagonist of the receptor that was the first one we described, which is capsaicin. Um, and the way that this works, actual mechanism, is that the amide bond in the capsaicin is altered by a thiourea moiety in the capsaicin. And um, it's a propylidine linker in the aromatic phenyl 2 carbon A ring. And the B linker amide, nitrogen, pushes the aromatic ring in an orthogonal direction towards the thiourea bond. So it completely changes the structure, essentially. And it's the mechanism of the antagonism. So it's shown inhibition in DRG neurons uh, in ocular tissues of rats, mice, and guinea pigs. And it's also able to antagonize bronchoconstriction and cough in guinea pigs as well. And then at the end, they just sort of know that there's one other antagonist, which is ruthenium red, and it's able to restrict capsaicin influenced neuronal excitation and uh, desensitization as another capsaicin antagonist. Um, so, this paper was a, a lot of detailed uh, information about applications on tissues and other mitigating effects, and sort of is capsaicin application more than just an inflammatory response? Is there something that is neuroprotective with it? If we give it systemically, are we able to desensitize to capsaicin treatment? So, there's a lot of information in there. Um, that's, that's all animal-based, but it just seems to suggest that there are a lot of mechanisms um, and, and a lot of uh, secondary effects after catch season topical treatment.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, this is a very in-depth, basic science paper. Well gone over all that. Uh, just want to uh, uh, highlight that, one, uh, despite the early research in animals on bataizan, there's actually no reason that anybody should go out and try this. Again, this is, again, on capsaicin, which is pepper spray, which is not tear gas, per se. The tear gas have the C molecules. Mm-hmm. And the doses they use in animals are micromoles, which is you'd have to pharmacologically dilute the thiazam down dramatically to get to that, to that amount. So I don't want anyone to go out and start doing this in a, someone gets pepper sprayed in the face. So we'll talk about what you should do with a couple of these other papers. But interesting, basic science level, where the calcium mediated uh, channels are helpful and also uh, talking about how pepper spray despite people like to say it's less of a problem it actually may be more of a problem even though it comes from a natural plant um, it's organic in a way but it really causes a lot more damaging at the nerve endings and tissue damages, that perhaps even tear gases. Yes, tear gas does. Now, I know you have a second article there. I think this one's sort of a little bit different track. Mm-hmm. I'll let you talk about that. Yeah,
3: for sure. So the second article is uh, Pepper Spray Injury Severity, a 10-Year Case Experience of a Poison Control System. Um, this was done by the California Poison Control and the Department of Pharmacy as well as Emergency Medicine at UCSF. Um, over a range of about 10 years, Mm -hmm. so their aim was to determine the prevalence and circumstances associated with the symptoms suggestive of tissue injury just beyond transient irritation in people exposed to pepper spray. They go on to give a little bit of background again because this paper also focuses on um, oleoresin capsicum um, but they uh, give a little bit more information. It's a mix of 100 compounds it's, uh, derived from the extraction of chilies, um, the Capsicum species. And as we had spoken briefly about before, these sort of products have overtaken CN and CS. And the reason is because the they're perceived to have a, a higher safety profile. Um, despite that, we know that it can cause uh, more severe effects in some instances, such as Erosions of the cornea, abrasions, ulcers, and uh, respiratory um, issues. The methods for this paper were a retrospective chart review of human exposures to pepper spray that were reported to the California Poison Control. Um, This center serves four sites, and it was the data collection was done between 2002 and 2011 via their electronic database. Um, they had a couple inclusion criteria, but generally um, it was only uh, those patients over six years old who were exposed to pepper spray. Um, they included aerosolized as well as uh, just plain exposures, for example, to a leaking container or a spill. Um, and they uh, did not include children under six because there was some thought maybe if they had licked it or there was some sort of misadventure there, that those were not included. Um, the data was aggregated into a cohort within this 10 year time period, and they assessed it by age, gender, reason. So, we'll get into sort of more of the definitions, but intended use, routes, their symptoms, their management site, um, which was was this a clinic, was this a hospital, was this over the phone recommendations, and the outcome, which they defined as either self limiting versus severe, which required more treatment by there are two major outcome groups just from that component Um, and then their comparisons were analyzed using an odd ratio to describe their findings. Um, Quickly some case definitions. Minor outcomes for this paper were defined as self-limiting and that was things like a dermal reaction would be simple erythema, swelling pain or itching. Ocular would be tearing or redness respiratory would be initial cough, maybe some choking, maybe some sensation of throat irritation, NGI would be some mild nausea vomiting. A more severe outcome was described as rash, blisters, um, anything that suggests a, a persistent dermatitis, a second degree burn, that would be all for your dermal um, effects of the OCs. Um, the ocular severe symptoms were described as persistent pain over an hour, and that's after complete eye irrigation for 15 minutes. Blurry vision, foreign body sensation, photophobia. The eye symptoms that classified as severe were sort of more extensive than the other symptoms. Um, it can go as far as exudate, periorbital swelling, anything that suggested that there was uh, an issue with the epithelium, corneal abrasions, iritis, and any signs of infection. And then respiratory symptoms that um, proceeded beyond the spectrum of just initial confidential pain were actual shortness of breath, chest tightness, wheezing, anything suggestive of lower airway irritation. They defined the circumstances because they had to break them up into groups in order to to sort of assess uh, the odds ratio just based on the, um, the environment that the sprite was used in. And the reason for the spray, um, which is interesting later in the results. So they group circumstances into unintentional or accidental direct spray, intentional direct spray to incapacitate, um, and that's either by law enforcement or during a law training exercise. Uh, indirect environmental, which is something similar to walking to a cloud or something like that, and then direct unknown intent unknown. So we just don't know about codes for product type or intended use for one, self-defense in the public, two, animal repellent, three, law enforcement use on individual victims as crowd control, and then four, law enforcement during training use, which seems to be a, a repeating sort of theme. town um, during training uh, purposes for law, it seems to be a big issue. For their statistics, for their normal variables, we t-test, and for their categoricals, they use a chi-squared and their associations for, for uh, described by odds ratios. So, in terms of the results of this paper, they had 4,544 cases identified and 3,675 met criteria for that. These are all, all the demographics are laid out in figure one, and they look pretty equal. There's uh, equal men to women um, of note, there were four pregnant 40 pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, the age range, however, does vary from 6 to 94 years old. Mm. Um, and in the more severe category, it's a little bit different from 7 years old to 65 years old. So there's potentially some reason for that, but they don't comment on it. Um, they go on to describe figure two, which is all of those categories that I described a minute ago, which are exposed by tight, intense, and root. Um, so by type, um, there are the majority of the cases that they evaluated were unknown. So 48% were unknown type of case. 24.5 uh, was the next highest group, which was an indirect type of exposure, and then the 20% was an unintentional direct exposure. Uh, so and then of those 57% of the unknown directs were severe. Most of the intents were unknown as well. So 75%, we don't know the reason that it was being used. The next one is 14%, which was self-defense. So of course, the intent unknown group also has the most severe case of being 75% of the uh, of that group. So 71% um, were severe, and then 12.9 percent that were severe were self-defense. Um, most ex- uh, most exposures were dermal and ocular, so 64 percent were ocular. That was severe, followed by 41 percent dermal and 30 percent inflation. Um, and then table three has reorganized these sort of by organ system for the 249 severe symptoms, which made up 6.8 percent of the the entire inclusion study. So ocular was 53.8%, respiratory 31.7%, and dermal 17.7%. So in this paper, um, of the group of patients that they were able to do a retrospective chart review on, 6.8% of the group had very severe symptoms, and 53% of that group were ocular in nature. So then Table 4 actually goes through some independent uh, factors associated with more severe outcomes. And the odds ratio is 7.39 if it was used for law enforcement during training. Um, The odds ratio is 3 for direct intention, uh, exposure to incapacity, uh, whatever that means. And then uh, 2.45 is the odds ratio for law enforcement use for crowd control. There were no deaths reported in the study of note, um, but seven out of eight cases with severe symptoms from exposure to training for law enforcement um, involved the eyes. so we can already sort of see that from their data that that's the majority of severe cases they had. They go on to say that maybe we should use protective goggles and training exercises, um, especially when they're being transferred to directly to the face to face tape. Um, They also state that co by the patient in uh, chronic disease, contact lenses, ability to promptly irrigate, may have impacted the severity, um, and then more um, long-lasting effects can happen, such as uh, corneal ulcers, erosion, I think they have one instance of a a person who represented 24 hours later and had a a corneal operation. Finish their conclusions with management recommendations, um, which is pre hospital decontamination and monitoring for respiratory distress. Um, initial treatment they recommend to be 100% humidified oxygen and LV for any instance of bromospasms or wheezing. They recommend irrigating the eyes with room temperature water or normal saline over 15 minutes, removing contacts, um, which is prudent, and removing highly saturated clothes to prevent any secondary contamination. Um, irrigate the skin anywhere that is irritated that is covered with with any um, any of the applications, either from direct spray or from a cloud. And then they note that potentially topical magnesium aluminum hydroxide or anything containing antacids can be applied to alleviate pain. Um, they did do a, an where They um, cite an RCT that did actually did not find it.
0: Um, I will talk about that.
3: With, uh, okay, mm-hmm. so I will. Reserve sure. that tidbit for later. So essentially their conclusions are uh, unfortunately there's no clear guidelines on which patients should be triaged or left or facility to be evaluated for more severe symptoms. But uh, in general, they said you should probably bring patients if the symptoms last greater than 45 minutes. They also want to recommend that maybe you should not rise for four hours if you have an active phone. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a higher priority for respiratory patients because they may and then ocular symptoms may wax and which you get presented a little bit later, potentially for either loving his eyes or, or uh, not having fully irritated um, his eyes before that. They note some limitations on this study, which I think are probably important to bring out, um, because I know that they're trying to make some conclusions just based on it, the data that they've found. So, retrospectiveness in itself. Can Lot of things. um, It's very difficult to have a complete data set and you really can't um, claim a causal relationship between anything. Um, So, the relationship between exposures and symptoms, we we don't know quite the precise time, we don't know what their decontamination strategy was, we don't know the particle size, Um, and then of course there could be reporting bias. So, something like persistent symptoms over an hour may lead to misclassification of someone into the severe category when in fact there's a they um, also don't mention anything about the effects on pregnancy for the 40 patients, but that's that's difficult to do. And then we don't really have any info on uh, long-term health consequences. There's a loss to follow, which they don't actually give the numbers on. Um, and they said that some left AMA as well. So their conclusions from all of their analysis was that there is a one in five potential risk for more severe effects after exposure to OC. And the highest risk is for severe symptoms is actually training of law enforcement personnel when it involves a direct spray
0: onto the ocular surface. Yeah, great, no, I think it's a good poison center based study, something that certainly can be reproduced uh, again by other poison centers. Um, I think it's always interesting when they do these types of studies and they talk about law enforcement and they, and we'll talk some more with these other studies. They get sprayed in the face, like, for a couple seconds, and they're healthy people, and they get washed off, and they have the worst outcomes versus, you know, and, and, and they sort of use this as a justification, you know, on a political basis to say, well, we did it in training, and, you know, see, we're still around, no big deal, but it really hurt at the time to the point where they had to call the Foyton Center, and seven out of the, eight of the worst cases were in law enforcement recruits in training. So, uh, to move along a little bit, we'll talk about, uh, like, what should we be washing people off with, because all sorts of stuff has popped up as a possible anecdotal wash, and we're going to let Jen talk about a couple of articles on uh, those topics.
2: Yeah, so... uh my first article is uh, called A Rhetorized Controlled Trial Comparing Treatment Regimens for Acute Pne for Topical Oliva Resin-Capsea and spray spray Exposure in Adult Volunteers. This study uh, was published in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care in 2008. Um, and as Zane mentioned, the uh, impetus behind this study um, was that there's no treatment regimen that's sort of been agreed upon um, for the treatment of uh, exposure to Cotter spray. Um, And while there have been a lot of anecdotal uh, remedies and cocktails proposed up there, things like vegetable oil, rubbing alcohol, which sounds like a terrible (laughs) idea, Mm -hmm. Um, baking soda paste, vinegar, milk, and antacids, um, this has never been studied. Uh, So the goal of the study was to determine if there was any sort of beneficial treatment regimen for uh, specifically contact dermatitis, and I'll get as to why that's important later um that's caused by the application of pepper spray um and so they did a prospective single blind randomized uh, control trial uh looking at five treatment reg- regimens for facial uh pepper spray exposure this was done out of uh, programming medical centers so as Zane also mentioned um it was done in uh healthy uh, military law enforcement trainees uh, there were 50 volunteers um, Capsaicin exposure is actually like routine training in the military as part of their law enforcement training, and so um, this is not like recruiting uh, community volunteers. This is something that they were going to get exposed to in training, uh, no matter what. Um, they included uh, recruits between the age of 18 and 60. Um, they couldn't have used any other analgesic or opioid medication eight hours prior to the study. And they excluded pregnant women. Um, and anyone with a known allergy to capsaicin or the variety of uh, treatment regimens that they were going to provide and anyone with open mood blisters or uh, head and face uh, dermatological disorders. And so the method, um, the trainees were exposed to uh, pepper spray uh, for about two seconds uh, in the face from a predetermined distance um, from a uniform canister um, if they closed their eyes during the first uh, initiation of the spray, they were subjected to a second spray, again for two seconds. Um, and then they underwent two minutes of uh, situational training um, that would otherwise involve like, exertion and confrontation of somebody who was being aggressive. Um, so after the two-second spray, they had a two-minute sort of full ex- you know, uh, saturation exposure period to the capsaicin on their face and eyes. Um, following the two minutes, uh, they were allowed to self-decontaminate with tap water immediately. The amount of time that that was allowed for is not uh, delineated, And then they were randomized to one of the five treatment groups. Those five treatment groups included antacid, lidocaine gel, milk, uh, whole milk, grade A pasteurized, baby shampoo um, or tap water, so that was the control group. Um, the way that they were treated was again they had they were allowed to self contaminate with tap water and then depending on what one of the five groups they were randomized to, they received soaked cloths from the substance and they were allowed to put that over the face and, and or use it as a wipe and um, they could have access to as many soaked cloths in their treatment group as they uh, were required. Um, they were allowed to refuse treatment and just continue using tap water and then after um, that they were rating the uh, visual analog scale of their pain and discomfort every 10 minutes for a total of 60 minutes and then a final pain score of at the end of 60 minutes. And the primary outcome that the study team looked at was the change in pain as measured by the visual analog score. Um, and so what they found um, was that exposure uh, for two minutes followed by a two-minute duration period caused a lot of pain. Um, but everybody, no matter what treatment that they got, uh, got better over time. So whether that was tap water or milk or shampoo, everybody's pain score has decreased. Um, if you look at uh, sort of all five of the treatment groups, everybody got to somewhere between a uh, zero and twenty pain score by about forty minutes. Everybody was close to zero at uh, the final endpoint of sixty minutes. Um, and uh, everybody started out at around a score between, I would say, like 72 to 80. Um, and again, the slope of the line shows that everybody improved. Uh, there's no difference in the pain with respect to time um, for any of the treatment groups. Uh, if you do kind of parse apart the lines a little bit, although not statistically significant because they had relatively small groups and uh, they had pretty wide confidence intervals, the antacids looked like... They maybe took a little bit longer time um, to get down to that uh, zero pain score as compared to all of the other treatment groups, uh, but again, it was not statistically significant. Um, I think the main things in the discussion of the study, so um, certainly everybody gets better over time. Um, we know that this causes pain. Um, the limitations are that they were allowed, everybody was allowed to self irrigate with tap water in the beginning. And again, that wasn't for a pre- set amount of time, so does just, just immediate application of water after exposure sort of help um, in those first few minutes to seconds, and then it doesn't really matter what treatment you get. Um, the other limitation is that um, you know the recruits were required to keep their eyes open, and so they had eye pain and facial pain, um, but they were only supposed to be reporting on the facial pain that they were having <laughs> and sort of ignore the probably very extreme your eye pain that they were having, you know, figured into their pain um, assessment. And I think that's pretty hard for somebody to do, Um, and so the authors sort of comment that, you know, maybe if they're having this concomitant eye pain, you're not getting a totally accurate assessment of their score, and maybe, you know, their um, numbers will be a little bit different depending on if you're able to parse those out. Seems a little bit challenging to me unless you're letting them wear goggles, perhaps you probably have to redesign your study. Um, the only other thing that they point out in their discussion is that there's sort of the stimulus effect, so that for some people, a single stimulus, like taking the cough and putting it over their face, actually exacerbated the pain, but if they had these air fans that were going, it actually momentarily like decreased the pain. So they were talking about sort of looking at um, the uh, involvement of... Uh, continuous versus single stimuli or single repeated stimuli in future research studies. But I think overall the takeaway is that um, there still doesn't seem to be a treatment regimen that's necessarily better than water, um, and anybody that uses water um, or any other these treatment regimens uh, will get better over time.
0: Yeah, so it was good, and they kind of compared a bunch of things. I was surprised the lidocaine didn't do much, but yeah. uh, lidocaine works differently than propercaine, which yeah. is what we usually put in the eye. but. Couldn't find anything specifically for that other than it makes sense. It seems like nobody could ever let go of the idea why baby shampoo doesn't really work because it's supposed to be no more tears when you're giving your child a bath. So 10 years later, we have another study. So tell us about that. Yeah, so the second study that I looked at um, was a study um, that was
2: published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine, as they said, 10 years later, so in 2018. And it was looking at baby shampoo to relieve the discomfort of tear gas and pepper spray exposure, and it was a randomized control trial. And again, sort of as we mentioned, uh, the authors are looking to see if there's any treatment regimen that is better um, for the treatment of uh, pepper spray and/or tear gas, um, something that's better than water, because uh, all we sort of have right now is that water works; nothing seems to work better. So um, the goal was to do a prospective randomized control trial to look at irrigation with water and baby shampoo versus irrigation with water alone in relieving symptoms produced by tear gas and pepper spray. So again, they did this trial. Uh, they had two groups. So there was a group of police recruits who had pepper spray exposure as part of their training and then the U.S. Army soldiers who underwent tear gas exposure as part of their training. Um, for the police recruits exposed to pepper spray, again very similar to the previous study. They received a two second burst of uh, pepper spray to the face um, followed by a series of tasks uh, that lasted about one and a half to two minutes. The military trainees um, wore protective masks into an enclosed structure that was saturated with uh, CS gas And then they removed their masks and were exposed for approximately 10 seconds. And then they had a training episode that lasted one and a half to two minutes as well. After the exposures and the uh, training sequences, sort of saturation periods uh, for both groups, both groups were allowed to irrigate their skin and eyes ad-lib with water. And then they were randomized to a group either water alone and continuing with water or baby shampoo plus water irrigation. Uh, the baby shampoo, they had a unit dose of 15 cc's of Johnson baby shampoo. Um, they were allowed to apply it liberally, um, and they could have as many doses of the shampoo as they would like. Irrigation for the police trainees was via a garden hose, uh, while irrigation uh, for military trainees was via a very fancy system of PVC pipes connected to a fire hydrant. Um, And then the thing that's interesting about this one, so in the previous study, they had to rate their pain uh, at intervals for every 10 minutes for an hour. Um, In this study, again, they were rating their pain, and they rated it at 0, 3, 5, 10, and 15 minutes following um, the exposure and irrigation uh, process. Um, They were allowed to stop at any time that um, they felt that their symptoms were relieved and continue on with whatever their training was. For the... um, uh, pepper spray exposure, they uh, rated eye and respiratory discomfort, so I'm not trying to like parse out eye discomfort versus skin discomfort. Um, and for the CS exposure, they rated eye and skin discomfort uh, together. Um, and so what they found, so in the pepper spray arm, they had 40 recruits, um, and there were no statistically significant differences between the um, water versus uh, water with baby shampoo Uh, groups in the uh, time to resolution of their pain Uh, pretty much everybody got better within uh, three to five minutes and uh, most people left the decontamination training practice area after five minutes so there were 39 subjects um, who were rating their pain at zero at three minutes 32 at five minutes and then only 10 people at 10 minutes and one person at 15 minutes so basically uh, with any irrigation application or uh, technique, uh, most people were better by uh, the 3-5 minute mark, uh, if not the 10-minute mark. For those who are exposed to the um, CS, uh, again, uh, it didn't matter whether you did water or water versus baby shampoo. There was no statistical significance between either of the groups at any of the time points. And again, most people um, were fine by the end of the 5-minute mark. There were only 4 out of 18 at the 10-minute mark, and nobody was left at the 15-minute mark measuring their pain. So again, sort of demonstrates that um, no matter what you do, it's probably just doing it and doing it immediately to irrigate and get the chemicals um, off of the exposed area, um, and that uh, uh, within a relatively short period of time, uh, most people will have resolution of their symptoms and get better.
0: Yeah, so again, another article sort of saying, well, you don't need to pack you know, baby you shampoo, shampoo with, with you, you in your back. backpack when yeah. you're going out, it just water is yeah. the main thing to... use the
2: space it. for your water bottles.
0: Yeah. I think the other thing I didn't mention, but you look at the graphs, you see the people who were exposed to CS gas got better real quick, and the ones who were exposed to pepper uh, took a little bit longer, and um, we've we'll talked about this with people... actually trained in the military to say, yeah, that's been their experience. The pepper spray is is worse than uh, the tear gas, although how it's used is different when it direct spritz in the eye versus walking into a room that's what the environment is all filled up with um, CS gas. So finally, I guess to address the last question, um, at least on my mind, was like, let's say you're out there every night and you're getting gassed every night twice or 10 times or more, is there a long-term effect that we could tell people that they should be worried about? Um, so John, um, not a lot of literature on this. I found one article and you, you picked it.
4: Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> um, so this is the article. It's uh, titled the Long-Term Effects of Tear Gases on Respiratory System Analysis of 93 Cases. Uh, this was published by are back at all um, out of Turkey uh, in 2014 in the Scientific World Journal. Um, so the, the kind of background that they show is they mentioned there's been some kind of case studies that have showed that um, patients have had exposure to CS gas um, in the past with the respiratory complaints lasting longer than an hour after they were removed from the exposure, and then a subset of those patients had prolonged symptoms for for 10 months. Um, And given the current climate at the time in Turkey, there was um, increased use of tear gas or riot control agents um, by the Turkish police. And the Turkish police said that they used primarily the uh, oleoresin capsicum, the OC gas, as well as the uh, 2-chlorobenzylidthene malonitrile, CS gas um, as their main things. So the Turkish Thoracic Society has been getting a lot of questions about this, so they sought to answer this question of long-term effects. Um, and they looked at the rest of the length of 93 subjects uh, that were frequently exposed to variety uh, control agents versus 55 non-exposed subjects as a control group. Um, so in 2012, this was done um, uh, through kind of a questionnaire. Um, they found patients from multiple different um, occupations, uh, healthcare workers, Faculty members, um, and then also 55 non exposed subjects which have matching for age and gender and smoking status to make a control group. Um, the questionnaire asked about respiratory symptoms, um, total numbers of exposure for the last couple of years, um, as well as using an, a NIOSH occupational asthma identification project survey for other um, respiratory symptoms. And then they perform pulmonary function tests um, to help of a local metal workers. Um, and kind of looked at FEV1, uh, forest vital capacity, and maximum mid-expiratory flow rate, or MMFR, as percentage predicted values. Um, so we'll just kind of dive into all of their tables and their results. Uh, table 1 just shows some demographic data, you know, indicating that the average age of the groups uh, was uh, mid-30s, plus or minus eight or nine years, not statistically different in the two groups, and there were 75% of the exposed subjects were smokers, um, and 66% of the control were smokers. They don't talk about how often they smoke, what the um, smoke pack year history is of any of these um, patients, which is a little difficult to kind of take away. What what do I do with this information? Um, How heavy are these smokers? But again, not statistically different. Um, and then the um, subject with a history of asthma was uh, 7.5% in the 93 subjects, versus 9.4% in the 55. Controlled, again, not statistically significantly different. Um, looking at the um, respiratory complaints, um, they, had, uh, they asked them a lot of things. Uh, wheezing, dyspnea, chest tightness in the last year, dyspnea with exercise in the last year, if you have a morning cough in the winter, if you have a daily cough, if you've had a cough for three months, if you have phlegm. Um, And a lot of these did have a statistical significance uh, with the exposed subjects having a higher um, percentage of answering yes to these questions. Um, So the exposed subjects More of them, 37%, which is 50%, said they had chest tightness in the last year. Um, 43% versus 22% of the controls said they had exercise dyspnea in the last year. Um, 63% of the exposed had dyspnea on flat ground. Um, And then uh, winter symptoms such as morning cough, daily cough, uh, morning phlegm, and daily phlegm. Uh, more of the exposed subjects said that they had those symptoms compared to the control group. Um, The mean total exposure times um, in these subjects, the lifelong exposure to tear gas was reported as um, 8.4 times plus or minus 6 times, with a range that was quite wide from 1 to 30. Um, And then they reported that the mean number of last two years of exposure was 5.6 plus or minus 5.8 times. Um, but there, the range they quoted as a minute of one to forty, which didn't make a ton of sense to me. If you have a max of forty, there should be a max of forty in lifetime exposure. Um, not sure what to make of that. Um, they also note that daily cigarette consumption uh, in the exposed group was higher at twenty-two and a half cigarettes plus or minus twelve compared to fifteen cigarettes per day. Um, but they don't know how long the patients have been smoking or whether it's a disease difference in like pack here. Um, as for the other results they, they note um, kind of cough and phlegm for more than three months um, and, and table in um, figure two they note like nose, eye, and skin complaints um, showing that patients who were exposed seem to have though not statistically significant seem to have an increased um, Reporting of dermatitis, watery, itchy eyes, and runny nose. Um, Table 3 is where they really get into the pulmonary function tests of these two groups. And as I said, they looked at FBC, FEV1, FEV1 over FBC, and then MMFR. Um, So in the FBC group, um, there seemed to be a difference in the exposed subject sources of control where the FBC was 97%. predicted. In the exposed subjects versus 89% predicted in control. Um, They did separate that out to smokers versus non-smokers and in the exposed subjects of the 93 exposed there were 70 smokers further in and in the control group of 55 there were 35 smokers. Um, And it seemed that there was a statistically significant difference in the smokers as well as the non-smoker groups um, both having an FEC around 97% in the exposed group versus 91 and 87% in the non-smoker, or in the, uh, control group. Um, FEV1 did not have any statistical significant difference, um, which I thought was interesting. They then took the FEV1 over the FEC ratio, um, and they, it seemed to be different in the smoker subgroup, um, with a FEV1 or a FEC of 81, percent of predicted in the exposed group versus 84. Um, that being said, um, you know, the an FE, FEB1 or FEC of 84 is I think still pretty good. But like, what does that mean clinically? Uh, I don't think it means anything. Um, usually anything less than 70% is where we start to have some concern. Um, that's the threshold for what you would consider like then you start saying there's significant disease. Um, going to the um, the Mid expiratory MFR. Um, um, that also had a statistical difference between the exposed and controlled groups. Um, in the smokers subset, uh, the MMFR was 89.9% predicted of predicted value, versus in the control group, it was 109% of the predicted value. And a similar trend in the non smoker group of 99% of the exposed group of predicted versus 113%. That, that particular subject was not statistically significant. It was at 0.05. Um, again, what does that mean? Um, because the, anything by 50%, so if you had an MMFR of less than 50% predicted, then you can say there is small airway disease. But anything above that, you can't make that distinction um, because there's a wide range of what is normal. You could argue with this table. There's a general trend towards you know worsening values, but none of them reached clinical significance as defined five pulmonary function tests, which I think is an important thing to take away from this table. Mm-hmm. Um, their last table just kind of looks at odds ratios for symptoms compared um, comparing the you know exposed group to the control group, and um, all of those the confidence did not cross one. And that the odds ratio uh, for chest tightness in the last year was 2.49. For a winter morning cough or morning phlegm was 2.4. For winter daily phlegm was 2.0. And then for exercise dyspnea in the last year or dyspnea on level ground was about 1.9. So it seems that in the exposed group there is a risk for kind of maybe some chronic respiratory symptoms. based on this study. Now, kind of, what does all of this data mean? You know, it it seems that there are some chronic symptoms reported um, with people who are exposed multiple times to riot control agents. Um, I think a couple things that confound this is, you know, there are smokers, so there's a progression of a natural um, history of pulmonary disease developing. Um, We don't have a clear smoking history, aside from Exposure it did smoke more um, compared to the left, uh, the control group. Um, but we don't have a longer history than that. Um,
1: there's also the, uh, you know,
4: the, the concern over the state design of recall bias. This is a questionnaire asking about your lifetime exposure to riot control agents, and then over the last couple of years, if you've had symptoms. Um, you could argue that people who are having symptoms may remember that better than people who maybe had a few days as opposed to a month. Um, they do compare all of their, their kind of findings to occupational exposures. Um, and it seems there is some similarities in you know, patients who were exposed uh, to peppers um, from an occupational standpoint. However, in previous studies from an occupational workers who get exposed chronically to chili powder, they have not shown any significant changes in pulmonary function tests in those groups. Um, so, this kind of adds more to the table of. You know, this is a separate substance, but we're trying to draw similarities between just chili peppers and yeah. riot control agents that are chemicals with lots of solvents and diluents that we don't really know much about. Um, but it seems that this is something that does need further study. Overall, they said that, that you know, being exposed to tear gas decreases your maximal mid-expiratory flow. Um, being a smoker and exposed to tear gas decreases some other pulmonary function tests. None of these reach clinical significance as far as the test number itself based on pulmonary function tests, but they are statistically different in the control group. And the chronic bronchitis seems to be kind of an issue in exposed subjects, so that they would reach statistical significance.
0: Yeah, no good. I think I think it hit the nail right on the head there is that even though numerically some of these numbers between the controls and the I was exposed in the past group are reach a p-value, they don't really meet a clinical significant value, perhaps, except for the MMFRs, small airway disease that some of these people have, and then when you ask them that questionnaire, opening the questionnaire, they complain more symptoms, but certainly none of these are severe symptoms. Unfortunately, this paper has decided to say, well, there's long-term effects, and which there may be, but I think more studies clearly needed, um, and certainly the prospective, you Know if they have all these military people get sprayed all the time, or once through training or the trainers themselves, maybe those are some important subjects to to look at. Well, anyway, I think we've kind of run the gamut of uh, tear gas, both the CS uh, tear gas agent and the pepper spray, which is also being used. And those of you listening in real time, um, have to report that at least on the uh, Federal range, they're not using tear gas anymore, at least as of the last couple of days here in Portland. But they still continue to use smoke to disperse crowds, and there's other issues involved. Not going to get into all of those, but you know the real question is both. You know the, both of these agents are intended to hurt people and make them run away, and the question is when does something arise to the point where you are giving permission in society to do that? You know, it's just chanting loudly at midnight enough of an irritant, or do you have to be turning over police cars and burning them to make that threshold, and obviously it's an argument that will continue on. But I think we covered the gamut of basic science, uh, politics, and certainly some uh, antidotes and some point and center observations and some long-term observations. So that is our journal club for this week, and we'll leave you with a little musical snippet as we go out. you all next month.